So for fun, and people might think I'm odd because of this, but for fun, I enjoy reading and studying books about apologetics. Now, if you're unfamiliar with apologetics, uh, the, the dictionary definition is that it's the religious discipline of defending religious doctrines through systematic argumentation and discourse. Seems clear enough, right? No, no. The word apologetics comes from the Greek word apologia, which means a reasoned defense. So simply put, or maybe not so simply put, apologetics offers philosophical arguments and scientific and historical evidence for the truth of Christianity, while also providing good answers to tough questions that skeptics uh, raise about the faith. Now, please understand that I wouldn't consider myself an effective apologist, uh, but I do enjoy reading about it and watching debates on YouTube uh, between intelligent apologists and atheists, both of whom are much smarter and eloquent than I am. But as I was reading an apologetic book called The Bible Among the Myths by John Oswalt, I was struck by something that he said in comparing why he believes the Bible is true history and not just historically based myth. Oswalt mentions that ancient texts like mythical epics and royal annals, they, uh, even if they're based on historical figures, they do not report the defeats and the failures of their heroes. They always glorify their heroes and they only list their successes and their victories and never their blunders and setbacks. But the Bible is different. The Bible in direct contrast to myths and historical annals throughout history is remarkably frank and honest about its heroes' failures and defeats. For instance, King David, who was called a man after God's own heart, casually ordering the death of a faithful soldier so that he can cover his own sin of adultery with the soldier's wife, Bathsheba. Or what about Solomon, considered the wisest and the richest man to have ever lived, who was foolish enough to enter into a myriad of marriage contracts or marriage covenants with pagan wives and adopt their pagan practices? Or even in the New Testament, the disciples were often described in situations where they make poor decisions, say outlandish things, and generally make fools of themselves. And yet these same disciples under the power of the Holy Spirit went on to found the church and were instrumental in bringing the gospel message to the world. This just solidifies to me that the Bible is a true and accurate history of real people who really lived and really did the things that the Bible says that they did. Why else would the authors show their heroes' shortcomings so honestly? It's because they were recording accurate history of real human beings who, like us, sometimes struggle in their faith, and they make poor decisions. Now, in direct contrast to last week's sermon by Jason, where we see a great man of faith acting out his faith and fully trusting in God, today... We're going to see a man who takes his eyes off of God. And he makes some very poor decisions on the way. Today we're going to be learning a couple things from Abram's story of poor decisions and half-truths. And we will look at how God's plans are not thwarted by our failings. I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news after last week's great sermon, but we can take comfort in the fact that even a great man of faith like Abraham can have moments of failure in his life. 
And yet God's plans persist despite our occasional issues and pitfalls. Now, a little housekeeping. As you know, Abram was later renamed Abraham by God. But at this point in the story, he's still called Abram. So that's how I'm going to refer to him. And Sarah was still named Sarai at this point. So that's how I'll refer to her throughout this sermon. At the beginning of chapter 12, as we saw last week, Abram was called to God, uh, by God to leave the land of his father to a new land that God would show him. God promised to make Abram into a great nation. God essentially says to Abram, I want you to leave everything you're familiar with and get out of your comfort zone. Though it's going to be hard to leave all of this behind, what I'm going to replace it with will blow your mind. You are going to be blessed beyond calculation. That's the Chris paraphrase, by the way. And in a remarkable show of faith, Abram believes God and obeys him. Later in verse 7, God promised to give this land to his offspring. And at this point, Sarah and Abram were childless and without an heir. It seemed unlikely that they would ever conceive or have children because Sarai was barren. We see in chapter 15, which we'll look at in a few weeks, that Abram is confused about how he is going to be a great nation without an heir. God's ultimate plan to bless the world through Abram is set in motion here in chapter 12. Let's get into it. Starting in verse 10, Abram gets to the land that God promised him, and there's a great famine. Abram's first impression of the land might have left him wondering if God's promise was a blessing or a curse. Famine was squeezing the life out of the land. The drought was so severe that Abram decided to leave and travel to Egypt where he would wait out the drought. In Egypt, the annual flooding of the Nile River Valley provided water even in the driest of conditions. In verse 10, it says, Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there until the drought is over. Now, it seems a little odd to me that Abram would, be, would, would in complete faith go to the land that God asked him to go to and that he promised to give to him and his descendants and then immediately leave because the conditions weren't great. It's, it's possible that God could have provided for Abram and his family miraculously if he had stayed. It's also conceivable that Abram thought he was doing the responsible thing for his family and his household and his flocks by temporarily going to a place that would be better suited to provide for their needs, at least until the drought blows over. The Bible doesn't give any more information or explanation other than Abram left, and it doesn't say whether God thought that Abram was disobeying him at all. What we do see is that Abram did not consult God on his decision to leave. There's no indication that Abram is operating in faith here in this decision. He doesn't deny God by any means, but he does seem to forget about him in this decision to leave. How often do we do the same? In verse 11, Abram gets nervous and devises a half-lie that seems out of character for him. It says, When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. 
Say that you are my sister so that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. Now let me give you a little bit of background here. In enemy territory, a husband could be killed for his wife. But if Abram were known as her brother, someone wanting her would have to make marriage arrangements with him, which could possibly give him time to react in his own interest. Also, it should be noted that Sarai was indeed his sister, or rather his half-sister, since the two shared a father but had different mothers. Jewish law would later forbid such marriages, but this was nearly a millennium before Moses and the law. And there were probably fewer partners to choose from at this time. So when Abram devises this plan, it was indeed part of the truth. He just kept it to himself that they were husband and wife in order to save his own life. Also, it's interesting to note that this claim that Sarai is Abram's sister occurs three times in the Old Testament na- uh, narratives of Abram. Here in, cha- in verse 13, uh, later in chapter 20, verse 2, and then again in chapter 26, verse 7. For Abram, this lie keeps coming up for him, and each time it is because he's in fear of his life because he believes someone might kill him to gain their beautiful wife, his beautiful wife as their own. In Canaan, all Abram had to deal with was a famine. But in Egypt, he had to deal with a powerful pharaoh and his officers. Notice the changes that occur in Abram's life because he made the decision to go down to Egypt. To begin with, Abram went from trust to scheming. When you stop trusting in God's word, you start leaning on man's wisdom. And this leads to trouble. When you find yourself scheming to avoid uh, or escape problems with people, beware because worse trouble is coming. Also, we see Abram moving from confidence to fear. When you're in a place of God's choosing, you don't ever need to be afraid. Faith and fear don't exist in the same heart. But Abram took his eyes off the Lord and started looking at people. God had repeatedly said to Abram, I will. But now Abram is saying, they will. They will kill me. Instead of having a proper fear of God, Abram develops a fear of man. Third, Abram moved from others to self. He lied so that it might go well with him. As the husband, he should have been thinking first about his wife and not about himself. I expected an amen from some of the wives out there. At least joy, come on. (laughs) Maybe Abram shouldn't have never taken his wife to Egypt in the first place. A husband out of the will of God can bring untold trouble to his wife and family. Anyway, back to Egypt. True to his fears, the Egyptians noticed Sarai's beauty. Starting in verse 14, when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. The ironic twist to this story is that someone in Egypt did want Sarah, Sarai, and this someone was an important figure who did not need to bargain for her, namely the Pharaoh of Egypt, who was more than just the king to the Egyptians. He was considered a god. 
Now Pharaoh did treat Abram well. In verse 16 it says, And for her sake he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Due to the bargaining for Sarai's hand, Abram became very rich, and he received livestock and servants. Also, it's considered likely that this is where Abram attained Hagar. If you remember the story, Hagar is a female servant who Abram would later sleep with on the urging of his wife to gain an heir, and from whom Ishmael was born. But this is jumping ahead a little bit. While Abram did get very rich from this arrangement for Sarai, it almost lost him his wife. And without Sarai, his promised blessing would be doomed. But God intervenes. I love those words. God intervenes. In verse 17, it says, But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. God sends a plague to strike the Pharaoh's family. Plagues were often considered punishment from the gods to the Egyptians. The timing of Pharaoh taking Sarai into his harem apparently led him, led him to, to suspect that this provoked the gods. Divine intervention alone could deliver Sarai from Pharaoh's harem unharmed. The Egyptians were a very superstitious people, and plagues such as this would have been ominous to them. It prompted Pharaoh to confront Abram about it. Here, in this section, we see Abram going from bringing blessing to bringing judgment. God called Abram to be a blessing to the nations, but because of Abram's deception, judgment was brought on Pharaoh and his household. If you want to be a blessing to others, then it's important to stay in the will of God. In verse 18... It says, so Abram called, I'm sorry, so Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Abram's deception is found out and met with a serious rebuke from the king of Egypt. The sentence is deportation. In verse 19, it says, why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, Here's your wife. Take her and go. It's interesting to note that these words from Pharaoh and the plagues that preceded it foreshadow the story of the Exodus, which will occur much later. Ultimately, Abram is asked to leave. In verse 20, it says that the Pharaoh gave orders to his men concerning them, and they sent them away with his wife and all that he had. Perhaps because of their superstition, the Pharaoh lets him keep all of the wealth that he acquired while negotiating with him for Sarai. We see Abram leaving Egypt in shame due to his deception, but also leaving a very wealthy man and with his wife, who is a key element to God's promise to bless him with many descendants. The purposes of God were intact, even though the reputation of Abram was ruined. Despite the trouble that Abram caused for himself, God was faithful to his word and did not let the foolishness of Abram throw his plan into jeopardy. So what can we learn and apply from these stories about Abram and Sarai in Egypt? 
The first thing that you can learn is faith is often followed by famine. I'll explain. We see at the beginning of chapter 12 that God calls Abram to go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. In verse 4, it says that Abram went as the Lord had told him. As Jason looked at last week, last week, this shows an incredible amount of faith on Abram's part. We don't see arguing or question asking from Abram. He just listens to God and he obeys. Maybe he doesn't completely understand, but he goes anyway. This shows an incredible amount of faith. Now, we would think that Abram's obedience would be rewarded with favor by God in the land that he sent him to. But we see that this isn't so. There's a famine in the land. The conditions were not favorable. In the life of faith, and this is important, in the life of faith, things are not always favorable. Faith is not about what we deserve. Faith is about trusting God even in the famine. It's not faith if we do it only for earthly reward. Faith is about trusting in God in the famine. Faith is about enduring the desolate seasons of our life when it seems like God is silent. Yes, we will someday receive an eternal reward. But in those moments of faith on earth, we must endure despite how difficult life becomes. When Joy and I uh, received the call to come to Ireland as missionaries, it was 2013. By 2014, we were appointed by our missions agency, World Venture, and we came to Ireland on our vision trip. We visited this church and actually stood right here because it was uh, me and Gage's birthday that weekend, and you guys used to give cake or cupcakes or something to the birthday people. And I met some of you. You're still here. Upon returning to Colorado, we started to raise the financial support that uh, would allow us to travel here and live. That process was difficult and slow, but we endured because we felt like this is what God wanted us to do, and we had faith in God's plan. As we got close to raising 100% of our support, I began to dream about living here and, and doing ministry here at Galway City Baptist Church going to trad nights at the pubs, listening to traditional Irish music, and visiting with everyone for whom we had been praying for several years. Like Abram, I was expecting a promised land. But then COVID happened. When we finally reached our full support and we arrived in Ireland, it was in the midst of COVID lockdowns, July 2020. We spent our first two weeks in Ireland uh, in uh, COVID quarantine, stuck in our home without the ability to see the people that we had come to know and love in our years of praying and striving to get here. I remember standing at our window and watching people walk by down our street and dying to speak to them, but I wasn't allowed to step outside of our home in those two weeks. And then we spent the, almost the first entire year of our being in Ireland, the bouts of not being able to go more than 5K from our house, you all remember, Lockdowns of various sorts, not being able to meet with people from this church because we were only live streaming and we couldn't meet together. Now, please know, I am not, certainly not, comparing Abram's great faith with our faith. But this act of faith that we had in following God's call and moving here, 
was definitely followed by a famine for us. Even though we fully believed that God wanted us here, there were times when we began to doubt if we had made the right decision and wondered why God would bring us here at such a time as this. But God is good. And we were able to make great connections with our neighbors during these lockdowns. Connections that we wouldn't have made if we were not all forced to stay at home and visit with each other uh, across our driveways. (laughs) Even in the famine, God's will is done. What Abram is learning in this passage and what we all need to learn is that trusting God is the foundational structure from which all of our life must be lived. If we don't learn to trust God, we will fail to know anything else about life. Faith is trust. In Hebrews 11.1, it says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. In other words, trust. Faith is not a leap in the dark or even a baseless hope in something good. Faith is standing on the character of God. Faith is looking at God and seeing in Him the promise that, will, that all will come to pass exactly as He said it would. Even in the famines of our life, we can trust that God will bring us safely through them. It is what we do in the famine that determines our path forward. The second thing we can learn from this passage is that depending upon how we react to the famine in our lives, it can lead us far from God. In Genesis 12, uh, 1 through 9, we see Abram acting in complete faith, but somewhere along the way, from getting to Canaan, seeing the famine, and deciding to leave for Egypt, we see a shift from a state of faith to a state of doubt for Abram. The first words Abram speaks as they are about to enter Egypt are show it, words showing that he is lacking faith. Say that you're my sister so that it'll go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. How did this happen? It seems that he forgot about God and his promises in this moment. When faced with the threat of his own life because of Sarai's beauty in Pharaoh's kingdom, he didn't consider the promises of God. He took matters into his own hands. How often do we do the same when faced with hardship or trials? How often do we take things into our own hands when faced with difficult situations where we would be better suited to wait in faith for God to move? The last thing we can learn is that, uh, from, from this story, is that God brings us all back in his mercy and grace. We can see from the story that God is not placing all of his plans on our feeble shoulders. Thank God. When Abram fails, God intervenes. God strikes Pharaoh's household with plagues, and Pharaoh sends Abram away due to his deception and the judgment that it brought upon his household. The messes that we get ourselves into do have real-world consequences. But God has a way of keeping his plan in place, despite our failings. It almost seems that Abram walks away unpunished and unscathed, but if you look further on in Genesis, you'll see that this isn't the case. Yes, Abram did leave Egypt richer than he ever was before, 
But those riches would cause trouble for Aram in his life. Not to step on anybody's toes that's preaching later, but we see in chapter 13 that he and Lot had to separate and live in different areas because their household, their entourage, their livestock got too big. And also, as I mentioned earlier, it's very likely that Hagar, the servant of Sarai, with whom Abram would have a child in another act of unfaith in Genesis 16, came from Pharaoh. Abram does suffer the consequences of his actions, as we all do. But God is merciful and offers grace in this story. He fulfills his promise to Abram and does indeed offer a child whose lineage eventually brings us to Jesus and does indeed bless the nations through Abram's or Abraham's family line. Abram's plan failed. Our human plans almost always do. But God's plan did not fail. God's plans never fail. Try as he might, Abram could not thwart the plan of God. The promise that God made to Abram would ultimately come to pass despite this and many other moments of faith failure along the way. Abram did not deserve to be brought back. But God does not treat us as we deserve. He treats us with grace and mercy. When we take the wrong road, God is there to bring us back. If we place our faith in Jesus, we may face the consequences of our sins, but we will not face the ultimate consequence. Jesus faced that for us. On the cross, Jesus died for Abram's lack of faith in Egypt. On the cross, Jesus died for our lack of faith today. The Bible says that we are in Christ. That means that our eternal place with God is not compromised. In Christ, we are secure. In Christ, though we prove unfaithful, God proves faithful to the end. Abram's way back is the same as ours. We are to look by faith to God who gives us what we don't deserve, who makes promises to those who can only fail, and who saves us by himself, to himself, and for the glory of God himself. Now, what does this tell us about God? It tells us that God is sovereign. In the affairs of man, God rules. Napoleon, at the height of his career, is reported to have said this cynical answer to someone who asked if God was on the side of France. His answer, God is on the side with the heaviest artillery. Then came the infamous Battle of Waterloo, where Napoleon lost both the battle and his empire. Years later, in exile on the island of St. Helena, shamed and humbled, Napoleon is reported to have quoted the words of Thomas Akempis, man proposes, God disposes. God is able to work his sovereign will despite man. So to conclude today, as we look at the story of Abram and Sarai, later to be renamed Abraham and Sarah, we can learn that you can trust God with an unknown future. 
You can listen to and obey God even when you don't see the fruit. And, God, and God's promises are greater than our ability to obey. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are thankful that your plans are not prevented by our failings. We are thankful that you work through broken and damaged vessels to achieve your purposes. Help us to learn from this story and apply it to our own lives. We are thankful that no matter how far away we stray from your purpose, that you're always there to bring us back with grace and mercy. Help us to remain faithful to you in the famines of our life and to trust in your good plan. Increase our faith, Lord, and give us the strength to pursue your plan despite the pitfalls that await us and amidst our own brokenness and failings, Lord. Thank you. You are good to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.